Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on this show, Atoms that Remember, Black Death, and Gravity Waves. In addition, we'll be joined by Sir Roger Penrose discussing the structure of the universe. Also, we'll find out what a glucagon does. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. Back to Berkeley Rocks, I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? I'm doing pretty well, and the weather's doing really well, too. As long as the weather stays this nice, you know, I, I have nothing but uh, great hopes for science in the future. But I was a little bit sad for uh, science fiction. Oh, what happened to science fiction? I saw the trailer for episode three. And? I think Anakin turns bad. We've known that for quite some time. I think actually even before the first three episodes came out. <laughs> oh, man. I thought there was some hope, some, you know, some miracle that would save him, but... <laughs> Dog on it. Yeah, well, I think he sort of wrote himself into a corner by, uh, you know, doing the uh, last part of the, seri- uh, the series first. In any case, uh, will you still go see it? Darth Vader did kill Anakin, right? Yeah, I guess so, in <laughs> matter of speaking. I'm actually looking more forward to the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, yeah, that one looks pretty impressive, too. Yeah. I think the trailer is also on the web somewhere. Indeed. Always good. And, of course, they know the answer to life, the universe, and everything. So you have to see it. 42, right? 42. The thing is, what is the actual question? Ah. Uh. All right, so there must be science going on this week, if not science fiction, right? Well, one would hope. I don't think science stops generally. So, uh, have you uh, encountered any cases of black death recently? Black death? Uh, maybe my previous lifetime. Oh, okay. That was the one where you were, uh, what, uh, Mary Queen of Scots? Maybe I was uh, Jack the Ripper or something like that. Uh, that would be a pretty cool incarnation, yeah. Yes. C- certainly living up to it in this incarnation. <laughs> Killing me uh, slowly, I think. <laughs> Softly. Yeah, so uh, it turns out, though, that uh, researchers are now claiming that perhaps black death might be responsible for resistance to AIDS. Oh, I've heard of that. Wasn't there a researcher at Berkeley who's doing some similar research? Yeah. Yeah, in fact, uh, Montgomery Slacken, he uh, actually was proposing that smallpox was responsible for resistance to AIDS. Right. So there are basically two competing hypotheses. And uh, the, the finding is basically that in European populations, uh, they have a greater incident of a certain mutation called CCR5 on the surface of their immune cells, which confers resistance to the HIV virus. Right. But the question is, why do they have such a large incident of it? Basically, there's sort of an implication that epidemics of some disease selected also for this particular mutation. The question is, which epidemic? Right. It's the same mutation that Professor Slacken had also uh, studied, or is it? It's exactly. It's the same sort of mu- mutation that uh, he's proposing to try and explain. I see. Based on his smallpox explanation. Uh-huh. And in fact, uh, so these researchers, a group led by Christopher Duncan at the University of Liverpool in uh, UK, where he studied population genetics to. Uh, try and correlate the incidence of uh, CCR5 mutations. Right. And what he basically found was that uh, it seemed to correlate very strongly with incidences of black death. Hmm. And um, so that's why, and of course, in various populations as well, he can say, well, the incidence of black death in certain countries also seems to correlate with their percentage of uh, population that have uh, the immune resistance to HIV. Right. But the one problem, though, with the black death theory is that it's commonly thought that uh, black death is caused by bacterium, whereas the HIV virus 
virus is, of course, a viral infection. Right. So you would expect for a viral, for something to confer resistance to a virus, such as HIV, it should also be a viral infection, which is uh, very good for Montgomery Slacken in the smallpox theory because it's a virus. You so. know, this reminds me of that episode on The Simpsons where uh, Montgomery Burns checks into the doctor's office and they find out he has all these different diseases, but they all keep each other in check, so basically he's healthy. I think that's uh, probably the cost of state of affairs in middle-age Europe where, you know, smallpox, black death. Gonorrhea. <laughs> what, what more could you need, you know? They had it all back then. So if uh, anybody wishes to read more about this, they can take a look. It was published in the recent edition of the Journal of Medical Genetics. All right, so it looks like this year is the year of physics, right? It is, well, is it? I thought it was the year of the tiger. I don't know, it's the rooster, right? Oh, is it the rooster? Okay. Yeah. I, I always tiger expect every rooster. year to be the year of the tiger because that was the year I was born in. So. Ah, meow. <laughs> Indeed. I guess they're celebrating Einstein for some reason this year. Okay. Uh, even though he was born 126 years ago, so it's not exactly 100 years. But uh, they have the Einstein at Home program, which just started uh, on February 19th. And this is a program similar to SETI at Home, where um, people can take basically 12 megabyte chunks of data from uh, the LIGO observatory and process it. And what they're trying to do is detect uh, gravitational, gravitational waves. waves. Yeah. Uh, that Einstein predicts would happen from, say, you know, spinning neutron stars or colliding black holes. And so I imagine they, they like uh, the SETI project, just have reams and reams of data that they're trying to go through to find, like, the smallest detectable signal of a gravitational wave. Right. You know, still there's about a thousand people who are joining each day, and uh, this is, I guess it represents another major effort in distributive computing power, using the pu public's uh, PCs to do this. Right. Well, I mean, uh, basically the SETI project was able to go through, like, uh, a huge backlog of uh, data in just, like, a matter of months. Right. In fact, so uh, yeah, it seems like a pretty good uh, project. I'm curious uh, which will be uh, most likely to succeed, the search for uh, extraterrestrial intelligence or the search for uh, gravitational waves? Hmm. Watch that wave coming, man. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe the aliens are generating the gravitational waves. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So it turns out if this is successful, it would be a breakthrough in both theoretical and uh, experimental physics since the, um, the whole infrastructure to build this was pretty amazing, as well as, you know, the, the theory, which has not been disproven for 100 years, and if it can be proven now, it would be pretty incredible, too. Right. Uh, uh, so if anyone out there is interested in joining, uh, they should look up uh, Einstein at home, and uh, one of the principal investigators is Bruce Allen of the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee. And that's all for our look at current developments in the world of science this week. In just a few moments, Sir Roger Penrose joins us to talk about Twister Theory. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. Einstein referred to it as the secret of the old one. This is the theory of everything that is supposed to explain all the phenomena in the universe. Since the emergence of human consciousness, generations of thinkers, philosophers, and scientists have made enormous progress in understanding the world around us. The ancient Greeks were the first known for systematically studying the nature of the world. In the late 17th century, Newton formed the three laws of motion which underlie classical physics. 
Einstein, in the early 20th century, formulated his general theory of relativity, describing motion at extreme speeds. In that era, quantum mechanics also emerged to describe physical behavior in the atomic and subatomic regimes. It is now the early 21st century, and we still do not have a consistent model that unifies both quantum and general, general relativity, and that also unifies the four fundamental forces of the universe. Superstring theory, the prevailing model in the past few decades, has not yielded a complete picture. Well, joining us today is a very distinguished guest, mathematical physicist and cosmologist Sir Roger Penrose, who will articulate our current understanding of the universe and talk about his new book. He is Professor Emeritus at Oxford University, and his work has spanned many fields, including physics, cosmology, and consciousness. Professor Penrose, thank you for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. Hello, it's a great pleasure. Pleasure to be back in, in Berkeley area. You've written a very engaging and insightful book, The Road to Reality, A Complete Guide to the Laws of the Universe. Could you tell us a little bit about it and what motivated you in writing it? Yes, well, the book is uh, meant to describe what's going on in basic physics today and what led up to that in terms which are a bit more technical than the accounts that you normally get in in popular books so uh, it was an attempt to describe things at a deeper level than you than you can usually get access to without you know that going to the full thing and reading a textbook i should perhaps explain the origin of the book which might be of some interest to people some years ago i wrote a book called the emperor's new mind and that book was describing point of view which i had about consciousness and why it was not something that comes about from complicated calculations. So we're not exactly computers, something else going on, and the question of what this something else was would depend on some detailed physics, was the idea. And so I needed to have chapters in that book which describes the physics as it's understood today. Well, anyway, th- this book was written, and various people commented to me. They said, well, you know, I could perhaps use this book for a course, Physics for Poets, or whatever it is, if it didn't have all that contentious stuff about the mind in it. So I thought, well, <laughs> that doesn't sound too hard. All I do is I get my scissors out and snip out all the bits which have any- something to do with the mind. The trouble is that uh, if I did that, and I didn't actually do it, but I sort of imagined doing it, the whole book fell to pieces, really, because the whole driving force behind the book was... Uh, this quest to find out, you know, what could it be that constitutes consciousness in in the physical world as we know it or as we might hope to know it in the future. But um, without that driving force, the book sort of didn't hang together, really. So I had to think of some other basis for this. See, initially I thought of a book about half as long as the other, and the other one's about 400 hours. The search for the laws which govern the universe at its deepest level, that kind of thing. So that meant I had to include a lot of other things in the book and uh, a lot of mathematics because I wanted to explain it at the same sort of detail as I did in The Empress New Mind or maybe a bit more. And this required describing a lot of mathematical ideas in some, de- well, not too much detail, but to give the gist, the basic feeling for what was really going on. And I made a list of all the different mathematical topics, and, it, and I was rather horrified to see how many there were. And it was even worse in a sense, because when I wrote the book, I kept realizing there were topics I hadn't really covered and needed to put them in somewhere. So it, it, it made for a long book, I'm afraid. But you have the advantage with the U.S. printing, I should say, because the, the paper is just slightly thinner, so the whole book is, is, is not quite so big, and it doesn't weigh quite so much. And the, and the paper is better quality, so the, the pictures and the, and the printing looks better, too. Great. So let's talk a little bit about 
physics. Um, in string theory, the particles in the universe are generated by the vibration of loops of constructs known as strings. The mathematical framework for describing these loops require multiple dimensions, and one variation requires up to 26, while the conventional model relies on 10. Um, in your twister theory, you can do away with all these extra dimensions. Can you explain that a little bit, perhaps? Yes. Let me just backtrack a little bit that, as you say, the, the way string theory works seems to require all these extra dimensions. And uh, this comes from certainly con certain consistency requirements about how strings should, should, uh, should behave and so on. Now, twister theory is something quite different. It's an approach to understanding how space-time space and quantum mechanics might fit together in some way. But the basic idea in twister theory is not to add extra dimensions. In fact, it's very crucially only three space dimensions and one time dimension. It's the number of dimensions we experience. But instead of adding extra dimensions, it's a reformulation of the space-time as we understand it. So instead of thinking of points as being the fundamental entities, which is what you usually do when you think of space, space-time or events, points, instantaneous points. You think of entire light rays. It's not quite that. Entire light rays, you see, if you made a space, each of whose points represented an entire light ray, you'd find that that space had five dimensions. Now, one of the basic driving forces behind twister theory is to find a theory which is based fundamentally on complex numbers. Now, you see, complex numbers, where you involve the square root of minus one into ordinary real numbers, they've been very useful in mathematics for many, many centuries. Only in the 20th century did they start to find a fundamental role to play in physics, namely in quantum mechanics. So suddenly you find these wonderful numbers that work so well in mathematics but didn't seem to have any role to play in the physical world. Suddenly they did have a role to play in the physical world. Well, twister theory is trying to take that one step further. So you look for a role for these complex numbers, complex spaces and so on, to have a role in, in space-time geometry. And what you find is that if you look at light rays instead of points, you find almost, and I'll qualify this almost in a minute, or explain it in a minute, you find almost that the light, space of light rays is a, is a complex space. It can't quite be because the space of light rays is five-dimensional and any complex space has to be an even number of dimensions because each dimension counts as two dimensions, see the real and the imaginary parts. So where is the extra dimension? Well, what you find is that if you don't just think of light rays as a sort of a path, a path of a single point, but you think of it as something spread out which has a, a spin. So it's in, that, in actual fact, ordinary photons do have a spin. They have a notion of helicity, so they spin around their direction of motion, and they can spin one way or the other way, and they can also have a, a different energy. And what you, what you find is if you incorporate these ideas into your photon, that you get another dimension, and you therefore get six dimensions, and miraculously, this six-dimensional space is a complex space. So the idea of twister theory is to take that complex space and you try to work with that. Now you see it's completely equivalent to the space-time description. You can use one or you can use the other. So you say, why, what's it, why does it matter? But you're sort of driven in different directions. If you take twister space as the basic geometry, then you find it's naturally complex and you do things which are naturally complex and it drives you in a certain direction. And that's, the, that's basically what twister theory is about. Basically, it's a, it's a reformulation of geometry in a way which is more compatible with quantum mechanics. As it stands, it doesn't change any physics. It's just a, a different way of representing it. But I should say that there's, a, there's a bit of an irony in this, that in the book I make the point that here we've got string theory and here we've got twister theory and we don't know if either 
neither of them is a right approach to nature. But they can't both be, because they are incompatible in the sense of having different number of space dimensions. Well, the irony is that uh, just a bit over a year ago, Edward Witten, who's the sort of one of the prime, I mean, he is the sort of prime mover in modern string theory, <laughs> yes, at Princeton, that's right. And he's, he's introduced many very ingenious notions which have pushed string theory forward in, in many ways. And he wrote a paper which appeared on, on the web in December in 2003, uh, in which he combines the ideas of string theory and twister theory. So the idea is basically you don't put your strings in these extra dimensions, that that's what, you, what people have been doing up to this point, you put them in twister space. And twister space is already there, you see, it doesn't need any more spatial dimensions, in fact you shouldn't have any more spatial dimensions, it's already there. And you can put the strings in that space. And then what he also finds is that this enables you to um, much more easily obtain sort of formulae which describe gluon scattering. So this is to do with high energy physics, uh, uh, strong interactions, and things which are actually measured in accelerators. So this is actually giving you results, and this is quite new in string theory, if you like, results which are physically measurable, phys physically observable. So I find this development a very exciting one. And I, fortunately, in the book, I did <laughs> manage to to uh, catch this before, uh, you know, it, uh, so I do mention these ideas, not in any detail because that, you know, it was only just at the last minute. Uh, I'm just curious here, could you also explain the essence of gauge theory? Well, gauge theories, of course, uh, gauge theories are very fundamental to our understanding of physical forces these days, but they also depend on a mathematical idea which has been around for longer than gauge theory has. Well, actually, I'm not sure about that, because Hermann Weyl, who introduced the idea of gauge theory, um, maybe the, uh, that came before the ideas of bundles. But the idea of a, of a fiber bundle and a, and a connection on a fiber bundle is basically what gauge theories use. And so I do describe this in the book. There's a chapter on, on these things. Um, still in the mathematical part, so that you're just doing mathematics at that stage. But let me try and describe, let me describe Weil's original idea, because I think that that gives you, it's the best way of, of phrasing it so that you can understand what's going on. See, Einstein introduced general relativity, or even before that, think of special relativity, and there's a thing called the clock paradox, or the twin paradox. It's not really a paradox, but it's if you have these two um, people, one who stays still on the Earth and the other one goes in a rocket ship to a distant star and comes back again, and you find that uh, the one who's gone off and comes back has experienced less time than the one back on the Earth. But what you don't find is that their clocks run at a different rate. You see, the one who's gone off and come back again, he brings his clock and it looks it's slow, you see. Time hasn't moved forward by as much. But but it still ticks at the same rate as your clock does. But in Weyl's theory, which he introduced as a generalization of Einstein's theory, the idea was that you could incorporate electromagnetism as well as gravity. And Weyl's idea was to say, well, why not generalize general relativity? So instead of having clocks with the clock paradox, which, you know, it can be slow, but it's not running slow. Let's suppose it might run slow. So that, in fact, if you go different routes through space to the, come back to the same point, you compare clocks and you find one of them is actually running at a different rate from the other one. And if you introduce that idea, you can and get a formalism which incorporates equations just like Maxwell's equations and Weyl's idea was this is a unified field theory which includes electromagnetism. Well, there's a minus and a plus to this. The minus was really Einstein pointed out that this can't be right. And we know that uh, this would mean particles would, would um, have different masses depending on what routes they take and, and it's really incompatible with the facts. So that was a bit of a disappointment to, to Weyl. 
but uh, the the upside of all this was that a little while later, when the ideas of quantum mechanics came in, Weil and other people changed their view as to what this theory was, that the it wasn't a change in clock rates, if you like, or in the scale of the metric, which comes to the same thing, but it was a change in the phase of the quantum mechanical phase. So you have a not a real number, which would be a stretching, you know, the time rate could be stretched or squashed. That would be a real parameter, but it's a complex parameter, which is a phase, so it's you're going around the unit circle, you're multiplying by e to the i theta, or something like this. And with this idea, you could incorporate mag electromagnetism in a way which was consistent. And in fact, that's the way it's done now. This idea of Viles is, that's the first gauge theory. It was a way of representing Maxwell equations and how the electric fields, electromagnetic fields, interact with particles in quantum mechanics, and it's exactly the way we do it. Now, that's the first gauge theory. Uh, it's called a gauge theory because the original vial idea was a gauge. You see, it was a change of, of scale. But then it became a complex change, and it's not so appropriate, really, to call it a gauge, but it's the same idea. But then this idea was generalized by Pauli and then by, uh, I think, Shaw, and then Yang and Mills independently a little bit later, but they were the ones who really developed the theory and people picked up on it. So this is an idea called, called Yang-Mills theory. And it's found that this idea, in a somewhat more general form than Weil had, which was just this phase, but you have a, a group which is bigger than that. It's, it's, the, it's the basis of uh, forces according to modern particle physics. Both the weak interactions and the strong interactions are supposed to take place according to such a theory. In quantum theory, we are confronted with the paradox of Schrodinger's cat, uh, where the cat is characterized as being a superposition of dead or alive until it is observed. Now, I understand you've collaborated with Stephen Hawking, and he's known for saying, every time I hear about Schrodinger's cat, I reach for my gun. What does he mean there? Do you agree with him? Well, it's a pity he has to quote Hermann Goering on this. What, uh, I believe the quote was not original with Hermann Goering. It goes back before that. It's, uh, I, I don't much like that criticism. It's not really a criticism. It's, it's just a feeling he doesn't like the idea. But it's, it doesn't get you around the problem. I mean, Schrodinger pointed this problem out very clearly, and I think absolutely Schrodinger was absolutely right. He was saying, look, if you apply my equation, that's Schrodinger's equation, to something at the scale of a cat, you get this nonsense which is a dead and alive cat at the same time. So he's more or less saying that. And he was saying, look, you shouldn't be using my equation, <laughs> Schrodinger's equation, to describe a thing like a cat. Something else basically has to come in. Now, he didn't make any suggestions to what that might mean, but, but uh, I think he's right. And uh, although all sorts of points of view are developed to try and accommodate Schrodinger's cat one way or the other, well, the main two are, are that somehow environmental decoherence is called. Somehow the, the state gets so complicated and mixed up with the environment that you, you have to change your procedures. None of these things really work if you follow them through. Um, the second one is, is what's called many worlds interpretation. You say, okay, the cat is there in these two superposed states, and if somebody comes along and looks at it, then that person now is, has two superposed versions of them, one seeing the live cat, one seeing the dead cat, and they're in superposition too. And then the argument is somehow, that there's a bit of a, you have to be a bit generous about that <laughs> point of view here, that uh, somehow your conscious perceptions must perceive either the live cat or the de dead cat. And it's not really explained why, because I mean, what you, according to 
Schrodinger's equation, you ought to be perceiving them both at the same time. And that's, that's not what we actually perceive. So it's where you're driven if you don't believe there should be a change in quantum mechanics. You're driven to this many worlds view. But it doesn't get you out of the problem. You're driven there, but you still have the problem. So what I'm saying is, why don't we think about changing Schrodinger's equation at some level when masses become too big, in a sense, and in, at the level where you might have to worry about Einstein's general relativity. So that's my own view, and that there will be a change in the structure of quantum mechanics at that level. Another way of saying this is it's a question of what's quantum gravity. You see, most people think quantum gravity means you apply standard quantum theory to the structure of space-time, and this means you'll have to do something different about space-time structure. Okay, I don't have any qualms or quarrels with that, but what I worry about is why standard quantum mechanics... Now, of course, I can see why people, when they do quantum gravity, why they don't change quantum mechanics, because if you change that, you're pretty well, well... You've changed everything, so what do you do, you see? So I can see that it doesn't tell you where to go. Nevertheless, it might be what nature is doing. And I think there are good reasons to believe that that is what nature is doing, that there are changes in the structure of quantum mechanics at that level. And there, there are several different independent reasons for believing this that, that are described in this book. So the, a lot of the book, a major part of the book, I would say, is devoted to this issue in different aspects, so it's spread over several chapters. Uh, so Steve Wolfram is famously known for developing Mathematica, and he's also a pioneer of cellular automata, which lets you create complex patterns from simple algorithms. Um, do you see any promise or insight using these methodologies? Well, I think these are interesting ideas, and he certainly develops them uh, to quite a considerable degree. But I don't myself believe there's any evidence that these ideas are playing a big role in, in physics. So certainly none of the standard physical theories can be thought of as, as cellular automata in any clear sense. Looking back, what's your most cherished epiphany? You mean what the thing that I'm pr most proud of? And <laughs> well, I think it has to be twister theory. Um, I mean, it, it may not be the thing that most people know about that I've done. I mean, maybe the non-periodic tilings or something. But no, but twister theory uh, is the thing that I would like to be remembered for most, I suppose, if that's... <laughs> so what are your thoughts about Kant and Hegel? Uh, Hegel describes a very different role to reality, history as a dialectical series of events. Um, you end the preface in your new book with a wonderfully wry statement about the need to study the forces that really shaped the world. Uh, can you share us your thoughts about the human experience beyond physics? Well, I don't know that I can comment on, on uh, Kant or Hegel because I'm, I'm no real philosopher uh, in the sense of knowing what these people uh, have said in any detail, so let me not comment on that too much. But I suppose I do think that, uh, you see, this this book is, is about physics, and it's about physics and its relationship with mathematics. So it's about physics and mathematics, and the how they seem to be intimately related, and to what extent can you um, explore this relationship and trust it. Just in the, at the end of the book, I do mention what you can regard as the sort of other platonic absolutes. So if you like, what I've been concerned with is the platonic absolute of truth in its particular form, that is mathematical truth, which is a sort of very idealized form of truth. But I think it's a serious issue to wonder about the other platonic absolutes of, of say, beauty and, and, and morality. I don't think the case for them is as clear as it is for truth, but on the other, case, uh, other hand, there does seem to be some connection between 
between beauty and and the search for these laws that govern the world and that you certainly find that people are driven uh, with this beauty as a sort of criterion or a, a guide to discovery in this context and as for morality well that's all tied up with the question of consciousness if you didn't have any conscious beings in the world there wouldn't really be any morality but but with consciousness that you have that so I think that the issue of how consciousness relates to the physical world is all tied up with morality but we have a lot to learn on that one finally on a lighter note let's talk about pop culture reality and existence are recurring themes in movies and books questions including who are we uh, what is real are you, are you amused by how these are treated in say for example movies like the matrix well, I didn't actually see The Matrix, but I get, I've seen other, other movies where maybe similar sorts of themes. I mean, I find it amusing and entertaining, and I've, I've always been a, a fan of science fiction. I used to read it a lot when I was younger, uh, and I like science fiction movies. But I think they're useful for giving us ideas, and I think that's true. I think science fiction is, is very good at giving ideas. But on the other hand, you have to take it all with a, a suitable amount of salt. And <laughs> these, I certainly don't believe that uh, these things like, you know, Terminator or something coming from the future who's, who's a mechanical entity uh, or but I think it's uh, they raise issues often too which which are not trivial issues so yeah I, I enjoy them <laughs> uh, Professor Penrose thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks uh, thanks for your time it's a great pleasure thank you very much too and we were just talking to Sir Roger Penrose about Twister Theory and his book The Road to Reality now available online and at bookstores everywhere so check it out you are tuned to Berkeley Grox here on 90.7 FM. We'll find out what a glucagon is, so keep your dial there. And I'm forced with the answer to last week's question of the week. You know, life is like a box of chocolates, and each of those chocolates, it gives me a little high every time I eat it. But you know what else gives me a little high? It's those glucagon. It puts the sugar back into my blood, and it makes me high. And that's what glucagon is. All right, well, you go. Thank you very much there, Forrest. It's all really good. Well, it's Cowboy Bob here with this week's question of the week. Well, you know, riding across the desert, I could use more horsepower. My horse is so darn slow. How slow is it? Well, it's so slow it needs more power. That's where I need power from is the mitochondria. Well, what's it do? Well, if you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us here at grocks at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but ego. You just might get more giddy up in your life. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Therese. Therese.